Hello, I'm Katie Piper, and welcome to my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Each episode, I'll meet an amazing person with an incredible story who faced adversity and came through the other side to inspire others. Welcome to this new episode of Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's a special episode as we're live from the Meatless Farm in Leeds. The Meatless Farm is a British company providing plant-based meat alternatives that enable us to swap out red meat without sacrificing taste, texture or nutritional value. I'm going to be talking to Wonder Woman and multi-award-winning screenwriter, director and professional blogger Vicky Pisarius, aka Honest Mum. And later on, we'll be joined by Chris Shields from The Meatless Farm. Here I am with Vicky Pisarius. So I am joined um, by Honest Mum. I guess for people that don't know who you are, what you do, how, how would you introduce yourself? I'm a mum of two, first and foremost. I think that's kind of like my biggest job of all, most how challenging. So um, Oliver's nine and Alexander's just turned <laughs> seven and we live in Windsor, but this is my hometown. But um, I'm an author. I wrote my debut book, Mum Boss, um, and I'm a blogger, honestmum.com. And that sort of was born really accidentally because I was actually a TV director and it's so empowering what you said about being put in a box. It reminded me of one of my first jobs in the film industry. I worked for a company, um, a very big, well-known film company, and I remember getting a meeting with an exec producer who's very old school Hollywood Mm. and he said to me, you can't be a screenwriter and a director. You've got to choose. Um, You've got to pick... pre-children. Yeah, pre-children. He was like, but you've got to pick a box. And what's happened with the advent of the internet Mm -hmm. and this amazing, enriching, democratic platform Mm -hmm. where anybody can have a voice um, means that you can actually be many things. Yeah. So I'm constantly, like you, trying to, you know, and there weren't... Uh, there were hardly any mummy bloggers when I started. I was part of the new wave um, mm-hmm. in 2010. There were a couple in America. It's pretty much nobody. Um, but it gave me a voice and um, it allowed me to create this flexible business. So now, so much of what I do is helping to hopefully mobilise other mums oh, okay. who are given the short straw in this industry, and we still are. Um, and I've, you know, how I've spoken in Parliament and I've contributed to government strategy. Whether mm-hmm. they implement anything, I don't know. But I've been a voice in meetings to try and really help make some changes. But also in what I do, I've wanted to show that, you know, you know, being a mum is a great thing. And also there's lots of things we can do. What made you swap the directing for full-time blogging then? 12-hour days on set yeah. is completely impossible with children. Um, because the way I saw it was I was like a mum in the film industry, you know, in the TV world um, for everybody else. But then when I actually became a mum, mm-hmm. as in like physically, I um, it, it was completely incompatible. And I directed some adverts and right. I remember having to be in Manchester and away from like my one-year-old for a week and it was it was physically painful. Um, yeah, um, I did wonder that because I feel like that's an industry where for women and for men also, family men, you have to turn up at work like you're not a parent, mm. um, but workers work so hard like you are working to provide for a family. So it's quite so a contradiction in, in that sense. Yeah, it is. I think that things <laughs> are changing, but mm-hmm. um, we've got, I mean, we've got 100 years for the gender pay gap to close. Mm-hmm. And if you think that female directors, I think there's only 7% of female directors. So you can imagine you're working in this masculine world anyway. Mm-hmm. I remember being pregnant on set and a sound man say to me, 
you've just won like this award from Channel 4 and stuff. Aren't you taking oh, wow. a massive risk being pregnant? And I was like, you know, he actually undermined me in front of my whole crew. Right, and it was, okay. and I was like, don't cry, don't cry, because you know you're meant to be in control, but you're pregnant. Yeah, and the hormones, hard with the hormones. Yeah. Really hard. And um, that sort of was very reflective of the industry. What I was did taking you say a huge risk. You were just shocked. Well, you know, I was four or five months pregnant, and I remember like just thinking, wow, that's so inappropriate. And I said, you know, I, I'm sure everything will will work out. But the reality was. When I had my baby, I had a really traumatic birth. Oh, right, okay. And I wasn't... This is your first baby. This is my yeah. first baby. And I wasn't, um, I, I, you know, it was hard to just get to the corner shop, never mind get back on set. Mm. So, so did you have a natural birth for the first? No, so I... Um, I hate that word, because however <laughs> you give birth, it's natural, right? Yeah, it's not no, like so unnatural. True. It's really strange. So I um, so I had a liver, pregnancy liver condition, which what, um, what it's, um, I think it's called ICP. They, it used to be called OC. And the only... Um, symptom is itchiness, but really quite severe itchiness. I was just sweaty and itchy the whole time. Really? I just kind of, yeah. you know. Well, this is quite acute itchiness. Right. And I started it about 30 weeks. Um, and I didn't get a lot of good information about and it. And first pregnancy, you don't know, is this normal? You know, because this is totally new for your body. Oh, absolutely. And I remember saying to my husband, oh, it's gonna, be, it's not going to be that. And then they, I got the call going, it is that. And then I was constantly monitored because there is, unfortunately, um, a chance of having a stillbirth when right. you have this. Yeah. So can you imagine it's utterly frightening? Yeah, and you're trying um, not to be anxious. Yeah, you're not trying good. not to be. But then yeah. I was given really contradictory advice and there's still not a lot about it. They're still investigating so it. Is as it a, a genetic thing? No, they, um, they do say that it can be hereditary, um, I think. But it was very frightening and it ended up in an emergency C-section Um when I was induced very, very quickly. And how and, many weeks um, were you then? I was 36 and six, so he was like only a day premature, but it was a real shock because yeah. I went in, was induced, and um, the, the midwife was like, no, go home, nothing's going to happen, it's going to take three days. Yeah. Famous, infamous last word. Yeah. I started feeling like I was in labour, right, and I went okay. over to... I remember the, the midwife there was just reading a magazine and she was like, no, 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 absolutely. Unfortunately, I've got a really high pain threshold. Yeah, okay. That so doesn't work well for you. Yeah. yeah, when you're in labour, yeah. it doesn't work well for you. So by the time they checked me at 6am, I was having hypercontractions, which I couldn't even feel. Right, okay. So I would have been amazing at a nat you know, natural birth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but your poor husband must have been so scared. Oh, well, then. I rang him going, they're rushing me into theatre right. to get here. And luckily, because of the snow, he managed to get across from Barnes, where we lived at the time in yeah. London, to um, the hospital, like, right. you know, um, near Westfield, don't even know, Queen Charlotte. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was really traumatic because it was such a shock. And I'm also, I know I wasn't like a young mum, but I was 28 and compared to all my oh, friends. Yeah. How old were yeah. you when you... I was um, 29 when I was pregnant with my first and then I gave birth at 30. Um, but I kind of like, you know, I spent most of my 20s in hospital. So when mm. I finally met the right person to have a baby with, actually, I felt a bit sorry for him because I was told I couldn't have children, which I told him. Yeah. And then after like nine months of being together, I was like, well, you know, that thing I told you. <laughs> 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 How would you feel if actually it wasn't true? Um, so oh and, gosh, but it's funny. And then with us, you know, we had natural conception, had a cesarean birth. And then the second child we planned and I mean, I I don't know how it's been for everyone else, but for me, you know, I spent most of my teens and 20s desperately trying not to get pregnant. Yeah. And then yeah. when I planned to get pregnant for my second, it just didn't happen for a long time. Um, and then we got like a puppy, gave up having a baby and then got pregnant when the puppy was like 11 weeks old. Oh my so, God. Yeah, then it was like, <laughs> You oh just relaxed God. maybe and yeah. took, it took the pressure off the I dog. Yeah, because I had to take... Um, 
a drug for, I had um, donor tissue in my eye oh, and right. I had to take a rejection drug that makes you infertile if you use it for up to six months. Wow. And I used it for two years. <gasps> Um, Is that so, why they thought you might not be able to have children? Yeah, so I kind of just accepted that because I thought, well, you know, I'd rather have my eyesight. And at the time, yeah. I hadn't really planned to become a mum anyway. So, you know, yes. it's... it's but, I mean, you had a similar journey. You had you were told that you would be infertile. Yeah, so. well, I was told that basically I might... They didn't say I was going to be infertile, but I have polycystic ovaries, which right. is really quite common. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, you know, if you don't have a baby before you're 30, you know, it's, it's I think it's the leading cause for infertility. Right. So, um, and similarly, so I met my husband um, when we were both at uni. Right, okay. And uh, it's a bit weird to sort of meet someone and sort of talk about those things quite early on, yeah, in a way, because you don't want to... You when someone, did someone sit in front of yeah, you? Yeah, I was 19 say? when I was diagnosed with PCOS. And obviously I wanted to be a film director yeah still want to be one day um and you know to to be told that I remember thinking well I'm not going to meet anyone that I'm going to settle down with before 30 anyway so did someone sit in front of you at 19 and say you better have kids before you're yeah. 30 yeah that's, well that's, someone said that's our recommendation yeah. and as it happened what pressure to put how overwhelming is that and if you, you think know? sort of in a in a male-dominated industry and in as a tv director and a filmmaker you careers only start getting getting going at like 40 anyway Mm -hmm. so it was it was a bit of a weird thing so did you Um, literally go on like a first date to wagamama's at 21 (laughs) and be like so what's your favorite color and will you have children in here like how do you do that I don't know it's really weird but I was lucky that I met Peter quite fairly young and um, we got married fairly young with polycystic ovaries there was a time at uni when you know I didn't have a period for like nine months and stuff and that was really weird and I knew I wasn't pregnant um, but it was just like a tricky time but I actually within three cycles had got pregnant and I was shocked and similarly with Alexander so I think you know I was lucky in that respect because I did think oh my gosh it's going to take years because it goes back to those labels doesn't it if somebody puts that label on you that this isn't going to be your path then sometimes you can resign yourself to okay well that's it and yeah. and again that sort of limits you and your choices and, and your optimism well absolutely well. then they, they didn't say definitively but they said you know it's gonna mm. it could be really hard and you might need IVF and I remember sort of asking my doctor to refer me five even though I hadn't really properly tried for very long just I was so scared mm. but it was a tough pregnancy it was a really tough birth and I did feel really sort of really depressed after the birth and really? it took okay. um it took lots of things. It took therapy. It took starting a blog to sort of rediscover my voice, my identity. I'd be interested to know, like, outwardly, you seem very um, accomplished and confident. This whole process, really from the beginning of the diagnosis of the polycystic ovaries, the traumatic burst, the change of the career, establishing yourself in blogging, did your confidence ever get shaken or misplaced at any point? Yeah, all the time. And I mean, I was my confidence was completely broken after I'd had this traumatic birth mm. to the point where, you know, I'd, I'd lost my voice. And, and I know people may maybe see me now as confident and say oh gosh I don't but we all have these dips dips and um we all suffer from the imposter syndrome Tina Fey talks about it and how she oscillates between thinking she's like amazing and and no worth and lots of lots of women do I think it's a feminist issue I think it really really affects women yes men have it as well but I think that because we you know we can't deny we're working um in in, spinning lots of plates spinning lots of plates and we're not really respected as mums so I sort of feel like as women we do get quite a short straw generally in the workplace and then mums are sort of even underneath that um I think that's a tough thing it's a a hard thing not be seen as a job when it is a, yeah, it's it's a, a job job. with no holiday, no pay rise, no acknowledgement. You know, it's a tough job. 
absolutely. And um, so, yeah, it was a tricky time. So I have had massive lapses in confidence. And like I say, just doing something for me, the blog, mm. and that might not be the blog for you. It could be Instagram. It could be a creative outlet. That it, independence. Anything. It gave me this space. So after the traumatic birth, loads of women and even mums of daughters contacted me saying... I'm getting therapy now. And um, I just want to destigmatize these things because mm. it did feel really alone. And actually now mm. it's a great way to share what I've been through. And it's some, and I've also had something, you know, relatively recently was that was quite say, full on. Even now, actually, you know, talking about confidence and, and sort of relating it to health, you know, you've been through a surgery very yeah. recently, haven't you? Yes, yeah, so I've got um, a scar here, which um, I've put some makeup on tonight, but um, not that I'm ashamed, but just it's, I had a big thyroid operation about a year ago mm-hmm. um, and it was quite traumatic because um, I had really acute tonsillitis and actually I put this on Instagram and, and people were so lovely because I, I had to call an ambulance because I woke up feeling, oh my gosh, I can't breathe. Did you think it was um, anxiety? Because if I get anxious, that's my Well, symptom. do you know what? I've been going to the doctors over the years saying it's really weird with my throat. I've got something and they were all like, no, 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 absolutely fine absolutely fine it's probably just stress and this is why we've got to be really careful we've got to really trust our bodies and how we feel and um anyways i'd have this acute tonsillitis sort of went to went to hospital i mean it's not like you taught loads so i don't know how it happened (laughs) (laughs) i know know. and this is me being really quiet oh god but um but women do get nodules you were saying yeah i've got nodules yeah yeah and lots of women especially who use their voice singers it's kind of it's quite common but to be honest nobody even mentioned a nodule and I went to a locum and he said oh just talk for me and I I spoke and he said I can see something moving and I still went back to my GP and they were like no no nothing can't see anything Mm -hmm. can't feel anything and uh I persevered because I I went back to a a, sort of different GP did you have a gut because well I saw a different GP and my tonsillitis had gone and I was still jumping out of bed as if I was being winded and I thought this is not anxiety Mm -hmm. I mean it it, there's crossover right yeah. but I was like I don't think it's that so she said let's just get you an urgent scan and mm-hmm. thank goodness because they found a six inch nodule my pressing goodness. on my windpipe you must have been in so much pain then that's really um, I was very close to when I had the operation and yeah. it was a huge op and actually the consultant didn't tell me how big an op it was I right. mean um, because he said you know no one would have it done if I told you how extreme it was um, <laughs> it was it was, pretty, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was pretty yeah it was pretty I mean you know far better than I do about surgery but um it was really weird because um I was actually on book tour um and I was determined to do that well do you know what they were amazing and they said don't you don't have to do all these cities but I wanted to because I otherwise I was sat at home constantly obsessing with my throat thinking about it but I had a wait to see if it was cancerous and it wasn't and to be honest I was in so much acute pain sort of after theatre and if you can imagine couldn't swallow properly um and it's actually taken a year to recover. And even now, sometimes the other night, I have this memory where mm. I feel like I'm shaking. Because you're a bit traumatised. Well, yeah, but I had five months of therapy and I'm really very much um, a champion of therapy. What kind of therapy? Um, so talking therapy and a bit of CBT because mm. I've got quite a bit of health anxiety around it because as you mm-hmm. can imagine, it was, it was full on. Anxiety. It I think was... health anxiety is quite common now because we all have such an overload of information and we can access stuff that years ago, you'd have to go to the library, you'd have to get an encyclopedia yeah, now, now you, you can know. Just... and now you can sometimes wrongly or rightly access maybe an overwhelming amount of information and... well I think that I was on such high alert because I'd had something that they said was probably there for eight years mm-hmm. and it'd been winding me every night and then I went through this massive recovery which like I say it was a year of a very squiggly recovery yeah. of like you know 
finding it really hard to just do normal things. But actually, what I don't know if you relate to this as well, but when you are at your lowest point, whether mm-hmm. that's emotionally or physically, um, you know, because it did feel like incredibly a, a really tough time, you realise your strength. So, for instance, I would feel like I was choking, but I had to be calm because I couldn't even cry. Yeah, and you had so, to make the mind be stronger than the physical. Yeah, and it yeah. made me realise, because it contextualises any every, everything. So when you go through tough times, you realise your strength. Yeah. You know, how did you feel with everything? Well, yeah, I mean, the same of you have to learn that the mind is the most powerful muscle that we all possess. And, like, you know, if you think if we lost everything, as in the things that society tells us we need, the material, the exterior, the appearance, mm-hmm. if we lost everything, all we'd ever be left with is our mind. And it's actually such a powerful muscle mm-hmm. and it can get us through some of the the darkest times. I mean, for me, I didn't so much have health anxiety, but I had like um, really high risk, like over high awareness of risk. So I wouldn't like anything in the home that could cause electrical fire, house fire, anything like that. I lived off cold food for like the first year of my recovery. This is like beetroot, cheese, crackers, celery. (laughs) Because I didn't want to cook anything. And then when I first met my husband, we moved in together. I, I kept chucking out the iron and then he'd like what's that me like have you seen the iron I'd be like no <laughs> and then, it's gone. And then when we got to know it a bit better he was like Tootsie can you stop binning the iron because <laughs> it's like 30 quid each time oh. I was like yeah well, I don't want it to catch a light did you, you have therapy as well yeah, I got... still have therapy yeah. now like, yeah. even now I yeah. go to a trauma therapist and I and I think it's really helpful because you know with the news at the moment it can kind of frighten you and re-traumatise mm. you and you you need a fresh perspective on it um and I know for you, you went plant-based. For the last year, you've gone plant-based, right? Yes. So I'm kind of... So, my title, I'm flexitarian. Well, I'm like a rapper, well, doesn't no, it? No, I love that. I love yeah. that. Well, I'm vegetarian Veg- because okay. um, I did... Um, and it wasn't sort of... I really did a lot of research. And mm. it wasn't kind of... Um, a huge thing that I just wanted. Was this after the photo? Yeah, yeah. So, well, it was, at, yeah. And it was around the time that they actually said, you've got this lump, we need to put you into surgery. And I was like, I want to make myself as healthy as possible. What can I, what can I do? Um, even though, you know, it was, it was a hard thing to swallow sometimes, but, you know, around that time. But I remember going, what can I do? And I read a book um, called How Not to Die, which is, um, <laughs> which is really, yeah. Yeah, which is like this huge best-selling book. And um, I was like, yeah, I, I, I want to, really? yeah, yeah, it's yeah. massive, okay. like massive. Yeah. Um, I think it's an American kind of okay. doctor who's, um, yeah, and I thought, you know what, that um, he, he isn't didactic about it and doesn't say, don't do this. He's just saying, get loads of plants into your diet and it's going to change your life. <laughs> and it's going to look after you. And actually, dairy isn't great if you've got PCOS. So mm-hmm. whilst I do eat it, I don't kind of eat it. You know, it's very much in moderation. But I went plant-based and whilst... Um, Was that I, difficult? Because it's only recently brands like Meatless Farm have yeah. been bringing out, you know, this isn't a processed alternative. This is a healthy alternative with just as much, if not more, nutrients. Yeah, I mean... It, it was uh, so. It was about over a year ago, and um, I did it for for about a year, and then I decided I wanted to be a bit more flexible. So my my little boy, he's seven, is vegetarian. He yeah. decided that he wants to be. I'm not. My other child eats meat, so I was never like you must oh, okay. do. Okay. So but, what was so, their journey? Did you tell them about? Your so journey? Alexander loves loves animals massively. Yeah. I mean, but it's almost like so we ate in a restaurant, and um, my friend was eating white bait, and he started crying at the table because he loves fish, and he's like, but it's Nemo. Oh, that's very 
very emotionally connected. <laughs> and it was like, he will talk to his friends and say, yeah. you know, how can you, he, how can you eat this? But you wouldn't eat but your doggy. And it's like, but good for him. Like, him. He's got opinion. such strong opinions. Yeah. And my husband's a pescatarian. Can you imagine what dinner time's like in my <laughs> Ten house? Ten meals a night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, Thank well, goodness actually, for meatless uh, farm, which honestly yeah. everybody loves. And I've worked with this brand. I was going to say, you could cook one meal with this brand, actually. Did you notice any difference within yourself? Absolutely. I did feel healthy, but I have to say one of the reasons why I decided to be vegetarian rather than vegan was because I started becoming a bit too lazy with it. And mm. I found that I was eating lo loads of things on the go that weren't healthy. This is really healthy. Yeah. But if I was on the road, say I'd be like, or I was traveling, it'd be like loads and loads of like vegan pizza. And then, cause you can be an unhealthy vegan as well. But, but I think so, it's better. Do you remember years ago, if you were just vegetarian, you go to the restaurant, I'll have the mushroom risotto. And, <laughs> like that was it, wasn't yeah. it? Or maybe a bit of overdue. Now it is it? incredible. Like, I can't, I don't have the cognitive dissonance with animals now. So like I couldn't eat an animal. Oh, like right. it would so just, something, just something change. I think I did loads yeah. of research and now it just would feel really weird. It'd be like biting my arm or something. It'd be yeah. just so odd to me. So I'm really, and. I think that environmentally, the impact, I mean, you can see here mm. the, the the sort of strides that are made it's by shocking, swapping yeah. one meat-based meal a week can have such a huge impact. Mm. And I think that we all have a responsibility to make those changes. So whatever our ethical beliefs are in terms of animals, we have to do stuff. We've got Greta Thunberg and now we've got this whole big... Um, mm outpouring of support to try and So are you talking this. on your stories about kind of not necessarily going vegan or vegetarian but talking about maybe considering a couple of days a week plant-based and, and then a few days with your meat stuff that you like. And actually if you want to convert people or you want to allow them to empathise with you, you do have to have a reasonable conversation. It's a bit like the difference between someone sort of shouting at you and telling yeah. you what to do. Yeah. Um, well I think that's great why we've got our own media like podcasts and, and you know blogging and influencing because we can talk and have a platform. We've got someone here that's willing to talk to us Yay. this evening who hopefully isn't going to shout at us. We've got Chris here from Meatless Farm. Thank you. Take a seat. Um, you're definitely not going to shout at us, are you? <laughs> Eat the burger. Um, now, I'm, I'm sure lots of you are already familiar with the brand and some of you are kind of embracing this lifestyle. Um, could you tell us a little bit maybe more about the history of why the company was originally set up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Meatless Farm was born uh, from our founder, uh, Martin Toftebeck. So his um, his wife and family were trying to do the the uh, reducing, so they're going to more vegetarian-based meals. But when you try and take that center place item like the, the mince in a spaghetti bolognese and it's uh, it's got the, the sauce there, but it hasn't kind of got the, the heart of the meal there. And then when you do the same with the lasagna and... Um, his wife turned around to him and said, well, it'd be great if someone could come up with something um, that, to replace mince, but on a plant-based side. So he, um, being the entrepreneur that he is, went out and found uh, someone that could help him do this. Because when I talk to my family about it, like my kids are probably more open than my husband. So my husband's like from Essex, he's really muscly, and he's like, nah, babe, can't go vegetarian, but I can't leave that salad, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, we could still have shepherd's pie, bolognese, and like you, I knew yeah. I could cook it with, say, products like this, but he actually probably wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, and actually for somebody who's interested in their protein and measures out their meals, well, this measures out pretty impressive. Sift, yeah, it? exactly. So um, the design that Morton went in with was he wanted to make a product that was on a cost comparison so that it was to swap. So it didn't hinder a family from going, oh, I can't add an extra pound to the shop for, mm -hmm. for that meal. But also that the nutritional benefits were there too. So 
you need to get the same protein, but it's also the balanced protein. So we could all eat um, pure soya, but we wouldn't get kind of the whole picture of it. Yeah. So getting the right balance of the proteins, getting the right balance of the vitamins, the minerals, so that if you made that switch, you didn't lose anything in your diet. And it, that was kind of the big thing for him was it was a direct replacement um, without the, the, the disadvantages of eating meat. Yeah. I just wonder from a business point of view, what were the difficulties you faced? And actually, how long did it take to bring this product to market ready for consumer? So this was two years in development. <laughs> um, getting the right balance of everything is really tricky to do. And to, to actually match that level of meat from a nutrition point of view is really challenging to do. It's a place where they kind of cater for all markets. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's great to finally have that option of uh, a real option that sits with the rest of the front. Because there was a snobbery around meat-free diet in the beginning of it being elitist, yeah. unaffordable. You know, not everyone can access a farm shop or doesn't live near suppliers like that. And actually, this feels like there is no snobbery. It's, yeah. you know, it's accessible for everybody. Um, I also like the feeling behind it not just being about animals, but at the moment, a lot of us are quite anxious and stressed about what we're seeing in the media and wanting to do something. And how can we how can we make an impact? Like, who, mm -hmm. who are we to make an impact? How can we do it? And there's some of the stats I read in some of my notes here about the gas emissions yeah. and I mean I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you remember <laughs> it I'm going to actually read it it said um because <clears throat> this blew me away. It said, according to a new study by a prominent environmental scientist, Dr. Joseph Paul, if everyone in the UK switched to just one red meat meal to a plant-based meal per week, it would cut the UK's greenhouse gas emissions by 50 million tonnes. That's the equivalent of taking 16 million cars off the road, resulting in an 8.4 reduction in the UK's total greenhouse gas emissions. That's one meal. Yep. That's one lie to yeah. your kids, right? I know. <laughs> okay. Exactly. It's yeah, amazing. I mean, that's quite over that's amazing, isn't it? Because it is, yeah. when you do see all this really stressful media and you want to make an impact, like that's quite accessible. And you know, I've learned in my own life when you set yourself up for failure is when you give up. Yeah. And actually, if we can all do something, achieve it, and feel like we're part of a movement, then we're not setting ourselves up for disappointment or failure. And no. we're you know, we're getting rid of that shame culture, and I think that's so important. You know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's about putting the choice in front of people to make it and making the easy choice as well. So it's it's very difficult to make a swap out when mm. it's challenging or it doesn't mm. quite fit right. But if you can get the texture, the taste correct, and and the price is right, and typically it's very expensive to make that switch. It's kind mm -hmm. of like the organic. It's very difficult to make the step up, and when you put with that choice, it becomes a challenge where. The products that we put out there, the price parity to meet the nutrition, the taste, the texture. Yeah. It's very easy to make the swap. And that's what it's about, making, giving the option for someone to do the swap easily. Mm. What's next for the brand? Is there any like new products or next steps? Uh, we're always working on new products. Uh, we're working on, we're always renovating the products as well. So how can we make it better? How can we improve it? Um, I think there'll certainly be some new products to market next year. Brilliant. Well, thank Amazing. you so much. Thank I feel, you. yeah, I feel really kind of, like I've learned a lot tonight and, and lots of things that I didn't know. And thank you for sharing some quite sensitive parts of your journey hey, as well. Thank you. And you um, too. It's been wonderful. Really yeah. great. And thank you all for listening <laughs> so patiently. And um, please enjoy the, the products tonight. <laughs> Take pictures. Tell your friends about it. And, you know, spread the word because it's so important that we all kind of keep talking and, and coming together like we have tonight. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.